Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the rich blessings you give us in Christ and we thank you for gathering us here this morning to hear your word. We pray, Father, as we come to understand this passage and what it is teaching about the times we live in and the world as it is, help us to actually understand what does it mean to be Christian preppers. Help us to prepare rightly for your coming wrath and end that we might live for your sake and for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love watching those prepping shows. You know those ones that talk about getting ready for some society cataclysm. I love watching those shows. I like watching these people get ready. I like the work and the details they go into. And some of them go into extraordinary details and extraordinary land. They'll go live in the wilderness, they'll learn to shoot, they'll learn to fish, they'll learn how to make bullets, they'll, they'll learn everything. They'll learn how to prepare and I, I look on and I'm fascinated by all this stuff. I really find it all really, really interesting. So much so that a part of me would like to do it. I've got to be honest. I look at those shows and I don't think, wow, these are just crazy people getting ready for an imaginary end. I think, yeah, there might be a kind of nuts, but there's got to be something in it. And so I say to Trudy, I wouldn't mind going doing these things. I wouldn't mind going out and learning how to live off the land. I wouldn't mind going, you know, learning how to cook bark and make bivouacs and all kinds of things. Trudy just looks at me and just goes, Adam, you're scared of grubs. And, and, but I go, I still want to do it. And I've always wondered where this came from. I always wondered where this, this desire in me came from. About oh, many years ago, many years ago, my grandfather died. And it was very sad at the time. But after he died, it came out that something weird had gone on. See, my grandfather lived over in Maroubra Ray and he grew up out near um, Maroubra and all that area all his life. And what he had done is he'd actually, though he'd lived in an apartment block, he'd actually bought his neighbour's garage from him. And when he had died, we as a family had found out that actually my grandfather had been secretly prepping all his life because when he died, we found out that he'd stocked this garage full of toilet paper and canned goods. Now, he was obviously ready for coronavirus a decade early, but he was had this garage full of all these imperishable goods so much so that I drove an hour down to Maroubra to have a look at it because I was like I've got to see this this is going to be amazing to look at and I still have the image of my mind toilet paper to the wreath and canned goods everywhere it was just amazing my grandfather was a prepper but as I look back and as I reflect about what he had done, I came to realise, and I still think this, was he prepping for the right end? Was he ready for the right ending? See, my grandfather spent his whole life secretly prepping, 
and not telling, by the way, any of his family that he had all this stock paper of toilet paper. So much so that when he died, we all went down and we were going, what are we going to do with all of this stuff? A question I'm sure many people in Australia are asking at this point in time as well. What are we going to do with all this toilet paper? Yes, we could have sold it now, but we didn't know. As we look at the passage, what the passage is actually calling us is to prep. But to prep for the right ending. To prep for the right coming of the end. My grandfather spent a lifetime prepping, but we all just looked on and just went, well, you died. What are we going to do? As we look at this passage, it tells us as Christians what we are called to do. How we are to live in light of what God is doing in the world as we see the end coming. It is a very powerful passage that teaches us that actually we need to be ready. We need to be dressed. But not dressed in toilet paper or dressed in the right clothing or in emergency gear. But actually we need to be clothed with the righteousness of God. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, being prepped and ready rightly before our maker. Now last week Dave preached on chapters 12, 13 and 14 and we saw that actually it ended with three points that came from Dave's sermon. That we need to hold fast to the word of God, be wise in the way we live and to persevere coming to the end. And then we turned to seeing the end in chapter 15. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time in chapter 15 but I want to touch on some important points because it really does set up the passage for us today. And as the chapter opens, we see God's people and they're standing by a sea. And this sea is a kind of weird sea. It's like crystal glass and it's mixed with fire. And as I read this passage and I saw the people standing at the sea, I went, oh, okay. My first thought was, this is a picture of the end. This is a picture of all of God's people gathered together and that's all it is and then it will whip into the passage. But then I had this nagging thought. Why would God put a picture of the end and then talk about all the judgments? Oh, he just wants us to actually, actually understand the end. But then I was more and more I thought about it. It just didn't make sense. And then I realised actually what was going on in the passage. The sea that you see the, all the people are standing by, the sea gathered is actually an image taken from the Old Testament. And it's taken from the period of Exodus where God had saved Israel from the Egyptians. In the Exodus event, God delivers Israel and takes them out of Egypt and he takes them to the Red Sea. And that while they're gathered together at one side of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's forces descend upon them. And they call out to God, God, save us. We are going to die. Because there was the Egyptian army on one side and drowning and a Red Sea of death on the other. And they thought they were going to die. And then God said, no, I will save you, I will deliver you. And he blew a wind on the sea and he cleared a path and the Israelites walked through on the path and after they walked through, the Egyptians plunge after them to capture them. And at that point, God covers over the Egyptians 
and they die. And as Israel looked upon God's great deliverance, his great salvation, and they saw the Egyptian bodies washing up and they gave thanks to God. They sang the song of Moses and they praised God for his salvation of them. And that's the image we're supposed to have of here as we look at the start of chapter 15 of Israel by the sea. And then I realised the real importance of the image because Israel by the sea is actually not in the promised land. They're outside their final journey of salvation. They're outside of where God is supposed to carry them. And that's the part we're supposed to realise. That's the important part of this, of this section. It isn't that God has brought them to their final destination. It is that God is going to carry them through the wilderness and deliver them and bring them into his kingdom. But they've still got to travel through the wilderness. See, what we see at the end of chapter 15 is God in his temple and the temple's filled with the smoke of God and the seven angels go out and pour out the wrath of God upon the world. But the people are still outside. They've still got to be brought home. We are the Israelites. We are still need to be brought home. We have gone through the real judgment though. And that is symbolised in the sea. And the real judgment was this. Our real enemy is this. It is the death that comes to all people who live in rebellion and rejection of God. The great judgment that we have passed through through the blood of Christ is that God's wrath, God's judgment for sin has been dealt with at the cross. God's blood has been poured out and he has turned away his great anger and wrath and judgment and justice from us and given us a great deliverance, a great salvation. We, just like the Israelites, praise God we give thanks to Jesus because he died in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. That is the great news. That is the great deliverance that God has given us. But just like the Israelites waiting to be go into the wilderness, waiting to go into the promised land, we await the final consummation. We wait to be brought into the temple of God. We await to be brought into the very presence of God where we gather with all of God's people and sing his praise. That's what chapter 15 is telling us. That's what it's showing, that we need to wait, that we need to hold on, that God will carry us, that God will bring us in. But we've got to travel through the wilderness. We've got to go through the judgments that are going to come. As we've been looking at Revelation, some people have been asking, is this a series of events? Are there like seven seals that need to be broken and then seven trumpets that need to sound and now seven bowls and that's when we come in? Or is it a different way? that we're seeing that revelation works. And it actually comes from a question and a view of history that we're struggling with. And one of the reasons we struggle is because of where we are in history. But the way actually revelation works and what we're seeing here is actually imagine this, I would say, lectin. Imagine this lectin is this series of events. 
And what we've seen, and this is why I wanted the chair so this will sort Andrew's problem out, with the first seals, we saw John, and he's lifted up into heaven, and he looks down on the event, he sees the horses coming out. And so that's giving you one perspective of these events as they're unfolding. And what you see in the first with the seals is that only a quarter of the earth is affected. And so it's one perspective of what's going on. It's a bit distant, it's a bit far away. The second event, which is the trumpet, John looks up into heaven and he sees the trumpets being blown and he's more in the thick of it, as it were. And what this view is showing is that a third of the earth is being affected. It's more visceral, it's more real, and it's bringing John in. As we turn to this last set of events, it's like we're looking at them past their being taking place. It's like history has been finished and here is the complete view. The whole world is affected. The whole world is judged by God. And we look on these events as a completed set of events. That's what's going on in Revelation. It is different perspectives of the very same event. And the reason we're given the different perspectives is so that we actually understand the full aspects, the full range of what God is doing in his judgment. And I'll tell you why this is important and why I believe this video replay. It isn't just because I, you know, I work for Joe and if I disagree with Joe, I'll be singing for my supper. Here's the reason why it really matters and why it's important. Because what we saw in chapter 15 is actually the whole gathering of the people of God, all the people by the sea. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean just people here in 2020. It means God's people in 2010 and God's people in 520 and God's people in 120. God's word is given to all of God's people across all of time. One of the issues that we have as we read the Bible is we think, oh, it's 2020, God is speaking to us. And so if we see these events as just a linear series of events taking place, we might be wondering, well, is it now? Is this as, should we pay attention to it now or is this a future event? Imagine, as it were, you're back in 520. And I'm going to come up with three fictitious uh, characters, three fictitious guys. I've just these guys up, they're just fictitious. We'll just name them for the sake of sake of the story and the sake of illustration, Joe, Dave and Adam. Now, Joe, Dave and Adam are in 520. They're a little bit dim. They're not that bright. Uh, they're, they're a bit clownish. They're, they're godly guys, but, you know, they don't take life too seriously. They're, you know, they joke around. They're just getting through in life. And they go down to the local... I would have said pub, but these three don't go to the pub. They go down to the local gym to ride their bikes because they're kind of insane. You know, they're fictitious characters. They bear no resemblance to today. None, none, none. Okay. So Joe, Dave and Adam, they're, they're reading this passage and they, they come to Revelation and they say, when is these things going to take place? And... One of them says, well, there's supposed to be a thousand year period. We're in about 520. Oh, oh, 520. Does anybody know how to count here? Oh, I didn't go to school. Anyway, one of them goes, does anybody know how to count? 
And then they realise, oh, 520, there's another 480. Yeah, these events don't pay any attention. And they go, to the book. They make the passage irrelevant to today. God's word is always relevant. God's word is always relevant. One of the things I cannot stand about preachers' conferences, and I hear this all the time, is that as preachers, our job is to make God's word relevant. No, it isn't. It is not my job to make God's word relevant. God's word is relevant. It is always relevant. My job is to make sure I don't make it irrelevant. That's what we do in our sin. I don't need to pay attention to this. I don't need to listen to this. I know better. I live in 520. What's this? No. This word is given to all of God's people at this point in time. We are supposed to listen to it. It's supposed to be relevant here in 2020. It was relevant in 1020. It was relevant in 520. It was relevant in 120. God's word is always relevant to his people. And so we see, actually, that God is actually about to pour out his judgments. That is what these bowls are doing. They are showing the judgment of God being poured out upon humanity. And as Christians living in 2020... We're supposed to look on and understand what God is doing in this world. We're supposed to actually understand what is happening. And so we turn to chapter 16 and we turn to the bowls. And I'm not going to go through how the bowls work. I'm not going to go through and explain every image of the bowls. The truth is, if you understand the Exodus story, and may I encourage you, that you go back and read the Exodus story. Because if you read the Exodus story, this sermon really just falls out. I feel like Joe and Dave gave me a bit of a gimme here because this is one of the easier passages we've read in Revelation if you understand what is happening in Exodus. But what we see here with the bowls and the first four bowls is very, very similar to what we're seeing with the first four seals being broken and the judgment of God coming through the horses of the apocalypse and the first four uh, judgments with the four trumpets blown. But the key is the religious bowls. That's the slight difference. That's the slight aspect we're supposed to see because they're religious bowls. They're bowls for a religious context. And what the bowls are showing, and this is where the bowls were used in the temple, and they carried the, the embers for the fire, and what those embers were, were about cleansing. And they show that God, in his judgment, in the pouring out of the plagues, is bringing judgment for the act of cleansing the world. He wants to sanctify the world of its sinfulness and rejection of him. Living in Australia... We can sometimes think, wow, life is good and life is good here in Australia. And that as we look at the world that, given how life, good life is, we can sometimes think, wow, life, you know, the bad things that are happening in the world, they don't really affect us. We're so wealthy and we're so rich in this country, which is not a bad thing, that a lot of the bad things that happen, we can sometimes think, well, we don't deserve them, that we should be exempt from them. That is what, not what the passage is teaching. 
I've heard Christians say, well, it, you know, coronavirus won't affect me. God wouldn't do that to me. We'll live healthy, wealthy and prosperous lives because we're a Christian. Let me tell you, the spirit is not walking before you and slapping down droplets of coronavirus. Christians get sick just like non-Christians. The difference isn't that we won't get sick. The, Christ, the difference that Christians do and the, Christians, the difference that being a Christian makes is the way we think and the way our hearts are. We are different in the way we live and respond to these things. See, in Australia, what have we happened just this year? We've already had bushfires, ravaged our nation. We're still in a drought. Apparently 99% of New South Wales is still in drought. We can sometimes think, well, the drought's up. No, we've had heaps of rain. Still hasn't got to the places where it's needed in a lot of cases. Now we've got the coronavirus. What are all these things doing? These things are the judgment of God upon this nation. As they are the judgment of God when bad disasters happen throughout the rest of the world. These are the normal circumstances of life living in a fallen world. But here is the key point that comes from the first three bowls. And it's in verse 5. We read this. I heard the angels of the water say, You are just the Holy One who is and who was. Because you have passed judgment on these things. Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. So as we see these judgments, as we see these plagues come upon the earth, we can be tempted to think, God, why are you doing this? This isn't fair. This isn't right. This shouldn't happen. I'm an Australian. What a load of bumpkin. God's judgment is going out because people refuse to listen. They do not want to hear God. And so they reject God, they rebel against God, they kill his people. What does Jesus say? What you do to the least of these, you do to me. God so identifies with his people that the way you treat his people is the way you're treating his God. Uh, the way you treat God. This is God's word. The way you respond to what God says is the way you respond to God. We live in a world that wants to go, I don't need to listen to this. I can reject it. I will be saved. And if people come up and say, no, you are under the judgment of God. What you're doing is evil. What do they do? Shoot the messenger. You can't be from God. You have no right to judge me. You have no right to tell me these things. I've seen it so many times, especially in university ministry. You see it all the time. What right do you have to judge me? The answer is none, but God does. God's word does. And our world will constantly reject it. They will kill the blood, they will kill his prophets, they will kill his messengers, they will continue to do it, they will do it all the way up until Jesus' return because they do not want to hear. 
Christians respond differently and we see that in verse 7. Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Christians know that God's justice is true. Christians know that what God does in the world, he never does out of spite. He doesn't do it because he's mean or capricious. He does it because he is just, holy and fair. And sometimes we might not understand all the reasons why a particular event happens in a particular place to a particular set of people. We're never going to know all the circumstances around everything that happens in the world. We don't need to. God is a God who acts justly always. Always. He will set it all right. That's where our hope has to be. We need to be different to the non-Christian world. And we're going to look at how the non-Christian world truly responds to these judgments in a second. But we need to be dressed and ready. We need to be acting like Christians as we see these judgments. And I'm going to look at these final three because the final three are the ones that are really, really important. But the fourth one, and I just want to go over the fourth one, the fourth one, and he says this, and this is the fourth angel, poured out his bowl on the sun. It was allowed to scorch people with fire. And people were scorched by the intense heat. And this final one is really interesting, and I just want to touch on it really important, because it actually sums up everything that's going on. And I was reading commentaries this week, and they were talking about, solar flares coming from the world and burning up the world and I'm just like you what what are you talking about what it's saying is simply this and this goes back with the other three that the very instruments of creation the very things that God has given us to actually nourish and sustain us will turn against us instead of the world being uh, like the instruments of creation used for our good they will actually cause us problems And we see that happening in the world. We see, you know, the very waters of the world which are supposed to give us life, they turn into death. The sun which is supposed to give us heat, warmth and sustenance over-intensifies and burns and destroys us. That's all that is saying here. But the key is then coming back to the way people respond. And this is the way the non-Christians respond. So they blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory and that is what these judgments are about they're given in the world so people will repent so people will turn away from their their wickedness and their evil desires they're actually given so people will come to god and say i will trust you i will glorify you i will not glorify myself but they refuse and so the final three judgments come the final three bowls the fifth pulled out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness people gnawed their tongues because of their pain and blasphemed the god of heaven because of their pains and their sores but they did not repent of their works so the judgments keep coming god keeps pouring out judgment upon the earth bushfire flood rain hail disease coronavirus and our world 
just keep on saying, nah, not going to pay attention. Nah, something else. Nah, not going to listen. And this final, this first of the final three is darkness. And again, it's reminiscent. I have to say it, but it's reminiscent of what happened in Egypt. The darkness here is ignorance, blindness to what is going on. It's blindness to the effects. Light, which comes, very first word God says in Genesis, let there be light. And what he is talking about in terms of light, he's using light as an analogy and is knowledge of him, knowledge of his ways. And that is the way the world is supposed to be. But our world chooses darkness. And so they sit in their pain and they sit in their sinfulness and they sit in the effects they, they are feeling from the plagues and they gnaw at God and they refuse to repent. They fused, refuse to turn to God. And so he pours out the sixth bowl. The sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the great day, oh, for the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty. This one is very, very reminiscent of Exodus. It is using the language of Exodus, but it is saying and using it in a way that is false. See, what God did when he brought the Exodus event in is he actually dried up the Jordan River and allowed the people to come into the Jordan. He allowed the people to cross the Jordan River so that they could enter into the kingdom of God. Here, this angel, this kingdom dries up the Euphrates River and all the kings from the east and the east in the Bible is the area where non-Christians live. It's the area where people go who are outside the blessings of God. All the kings of the east come together and the Euphrates River, just like God drying up the Jordan, dries up the Euphrates River and they come rushing in to the land and they assemble around the unholy trinity, the three unclean, spirits who are that come from the dragon's mouth from the beast's mouth and from the mouth of the false prophet they hear these words these false teachings and they gather together just like out sinai where all the god's people gathered around his throne to hear his word the all the kings of the world gather around what these three false speakers say and they are gathering to hear a false teacher, so that they are ready and prepared to take on God. It is a picture, again, of a gathering, but an unholy gathering, a gathering there for destruction. But it is a gathering that is going to be marked by destruction because it does not understand. It does not see what is coming. And this is where Jesus speaks in verse 16. Look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. See, they're all gathered ready to assault God's people. They're ready to attack God's people. What does Jesus say? No, I am coming and I am going to attack you. And I am coming like a thief. I don't know anybody who's 
had their house broken into. I hope that isn't you. But if it is you, please tell me, did the thief give you warning the day before? I'm coming. You know, be ready. Put bars up because I'll be... No, no thief tells you they're coming. That's the whole point. Because if they did, you'd get ready. Jesus says he is coming like a thief. But there's a second part, and it's actually in uh, last month's Southern Cross, if you read the article, that I never actually... uh, Read the article on page 26, that I actually never thought of about thieves. See, again, because of where we are in history, we don't really get the full uh, weight, the full impact of that thief language. In the ancient world, they had no insurance. They had no government benefits. A thief came, guess what? You lost everything. It was destructive. What Jesus is saying is, he is like the thief. When he comes, you will lose everything if you are not ready. If you are not prepared, he's saying, I am coming to destroy. It is a powerful image that reminds us that what Jesus, when he comes, and he's going to come like a thief in the night, he's going to destroy those who are not ready, who are not prepared. So they they assembled. Verse 17. So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. They got ready. They thought. Now, Looking at this language, and I'm only bringing this up because I know people are going to go, what's all this Armageddon? Where's Armageddon? Where's this great final battle going to take place? Actually, this is not that difficult if you actually understand what's sort of going on here. And the problem we've got is that Armageddon is a Hebrew word that's been transliterated, which simply means they took the Hebrew word, they turned it into Greek letters, then they took the Greek letters and they turned it into English letters. That's all it is. But there's a, there's a problem with that. See, it's not supposed to be Armageddon. It should be Harmageddon with a H. Why is the H missing? The H is missing for one simple reason. Hebrew has a H. Greek alphabet does not. There's no H in the Greek alphabet. So when they transliterate it, there's a rough what's called a rough beeping mark. So they make the H sound, they go, but they actually don't have a letter. So they don't have a letter in the alphabet, in the Greek alphabet, when they turn it into English, which again has a a H in its alphabet, the H has still gone missing. It's supposed to be harm again. And you go, why is it important that you have a H? Actually, it's very important because in Hebrew, the word H-A-R, ha, means mouth. And it should be Mount Megiddo, Mount Megiddon. And you go, okay, so this shouldn't be Armageddon, it should be Mount Megiddon or Mount Megiddo. Okay, where's this Mount Megiddo? It doesn't matter. It's unimportant. The idea is of the mount and the idea is that it's a pseudo-mount. For just like Israel had gathered around to hear God's voice, these people are gathering around and that's why no one can find it because it doesn't matter. 
They're just gathered together to take on God and take on his people. That's what this is about. Don't go looking for a special mountain in Israel where this final battle is going to take. It's not there. It doesn't exist. The point is simply this. God's enemies are going to gather together to take on God and his people. That's what Armageddon is talking about. But they will fail. And they will fail miserably, which leads us to the seventh and final bowl. Then the seventh poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since people had been on the earth. So great was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave up her, her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on people and they were blasphemed and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because that plague was extremely severe here is the final judgment this is looking at the judgment at from the end and it is so severe it brings total and utter destruction there is no coming back from this this is actually the end this is the final return of Jesus that is what it's talking about and if you look at the language, you would have heard the reflections from Sinai where people are outside and they're looking up at Sinai and they're seeing God descend upon the mountain and they're like, God, that is scary. Don't speak to us. We're going to die because they're on the outside. That is the world. It's going to look at the judgment of God, the final coming and going, why are you doing this? It makes no sense. We're not so bad. But the earth is coming and there'll be a complete judgment. The breaking of the city of Babylon into three, just saying it's, it's done, it's finished, it is over. When that final judgment comes, and it will come, you can be sure, so sure of the final judgment, you can be more sure that the final judgment will come than the sun will rise tomorrow. Do you believe that? I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow. But do you believe that? More sure that God will come in his final judgment than that the sun will rise tomorrow. Because that's what this passage is saying. And it's saying, if you know that, if that is the way you understand the world is going to be, are you ready? Are you living in light of that? This week, just this week on university campus, I'm sitting there and had a student come up to me. And it's a student I've been working for for a year. And, you know, as universities tend to do, he met a girl. And this girl's a Christian girl, but he goes to a Roman Catholic church. But I've been working with him for a year and he's always responded to the word of God. And I said, oh, you know, I won't use his name. I said, oh, well, how's it going? And he said, yeah, it's going with a girl. This girl's really nice. I really like her. She's very into Christianity. I'm like, for me, I was secretly going, oh, that's great which I was, I was going, that's great. But then he said, but her parents don't like me. And I'm like, oh, okay, why is that? He goes, because they don't think I'm a Christian. And I said, yeah, I understand. And he goes, why? 
And so I sat down and I explained the difference between what Roman Catholics teach, teach because he goes to a Roman Catholic church and what it means for the Bible and what the Bible is saying. And I showed him how the Roman Catholic Mass is actually antithetical to what the Bible is saying. And he sat there and we, we read the Bible and he listened it through and he went, oh, that's a real problem. And I said, yes, it is. And he said, oh, I really like the Roman Catholic Church and my mum and dad are very Roman Catholic. And I said, yeah, but you've got a choice to make. And I could see in his heart, he knew that it was a tough choice. He knew that he would have to leave and he was counting the cost. And he knew the cost was high. There is no such thing as an easy Christianity. When you're walking through the wilderness, the wilderness is a harsh and tough environment to live in. Living in Australia can make us complacent. We've talked a bit about this, but it is something that you've got to understand. We live in the wilderness. Don't be bemused by all that you see. I think one of the great things about the coronavirus is it actually reminds us, oh, the shelves might not always be full. I went shopping with Ben this week. Sorry, Ben. I went shopping with Ben this week. And while we're at the shops, we, uh, I took him down to the toilet paper aisle, mainly because I wanted him to see empty shelves because that was kind of cool. So I went and had a look at the, at, the, at the empty shelves and then I took him around to the pasta and I grabbed, two, I grabbed two packets of pasta. There was still some there, but it was rather low. And he said, oh, Dad, you should grab four. And I said, no, I'm not going to grab more than two because that's all we need and other people might need some. And he goes, yeah, but what if we run out? And I said, Ben, this is not going to be the end. And he goes, well, why, Dad? How do you know, you know it's not going to be the end? So I took him around to the front of the store and I said, see all the chocolate bunnies? They're not disappearing. Do you see all the vegetables? They're all chocked, all the perishable goods, all the meats. It was all full and the shelves were all full. When I see those shelves starting to enter, empty, then I'll be worried. If people start chalking up on those things and not toilet paper, then I'll be scared. This is not the end. But it is a time for serious consideration. Yeah, we do need to think about coronavirus. We need to take helpful and necessary precautions. But I can tell you, this isn't the end. Why? Because God's word tells me so. I went and brought toilet paper this week because we were getting a bit low. And some of the ways people were reacting was just atrocious. You know, we were there early, but there was enough for everybody who was there. But still, people were backbiting and treating people miserably. I was there being my usual self, cracking jokes and saying things that I probably shouldn't have said, but I was having fun. Why? Because it's not the end. Because we need to be dressed and ready. And to be dressed and ready means to take on the character of God. It means to actually be wise in light of these events. It means only taking two pasta instead of ten because we might run out. It means thinking about others still. It might mean going to the weekend away where we gather together. It might mean staying at home 
So you don't share the love. Being ready means we act and think and prepared for the way that God wants us to be prepared so the day when we gather in heaven with all his people. See, that's what I look forward to. Is actually that day where all of God's people are carried through the wilderness, where I get to hang out with guys like Joe and Dave and, you know, those, those fictional characters that I was talking about earlier, where I get to hang out with those guys and we sing God's praise because that is what life is about. That is to, true Christian prepping. It's not grabbing as much toilet paper as you can so that you could wrap the next seven thousand years worth of cars in it it is about being godly and wise see my grandfather prepped all his life but he didn't prep for the right end i wasn't a christian at the time but then there was my grandfather it was pointless we just took his stuff and got rid of it we prep for an ending that will come. We prep for an ending where all of God's people are gathered around his throne. And let me finish with this. Here's what we are prepping for. This comes from Hebrews. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged, that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirit of the righteous people made perfect. That is our home. That is the true gathering of God. That is where he's taking us. Are you ready? Are you dressed? See, the Israelites were told back in the Exodus when God was about to get them out of Egypt, have your staff in your hand, your sandals on your feet, don't cook bread with yeast. Why? There's not enough time. I am coming. Be ready. God is saying the same thing to you. Be dressed and ready. Be prepped because the true ending is coming. And that's one ending you don't want to be caught unaware of. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for Jesus. We do thank you for what he has done for us on the cross, that he has gathered us by the great sea and is carrying us into his heavenly home. We pray, Father, as his people here, as we journey through the wilderness, that we will trust, on, trust you. Help us to be dressed and ready to go. Help us to be, be prepared. Help us to do true Christian prepping that we might live for your sake and for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.